we just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that we've already sung and declared this afternoon. Father, we declare that there is no one like you, that you are the one true God. We declare that there are no others in this world that compare to who you are and what you've done. We declare that you are a gracious God. You are a God who delights to show us favour and you are bringing us home. Father, in light of the present circumstances that we find ourselves in, in this world, in our individual struggles, we need to hear that and be reminded of that this afternoon, that you have promised an eternal future for your people and that place is secure. Thank you, Jesus, that it's you that will bring us home, not our works, not anything that we have done. It is you, Lord Jesus, that will bring us your brothers and sisters in Christ home. And Jesus, we pray that as we read these words, that we would believe that they are true. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do the work that you always do. We, we declare that these words aren't just words to us. They are living and active. They are sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would change us. Make us more like Jesus. Secure our hope in him this afternoon, we pray. It's in his name that we ask. Amen. Well, folks, the world is changing, eh? Like we're seeing that day after day. We just need to go onto BBC News and look on our social media and we see that things are changing. And we feel it, don't we? Like I'm sure I'm not the only one, but we feel that something's shifting, something is changing. It's interesting, uh, the sociologists after... The pandemic during the, the end of the pandemic, they were all projecting what the world's going to be like in the next few years. And all of them said, we're going to feel the pinch of it for a few years. But give it four or five years, we'll, we'll kind of get back to where we were in 2019 and we'll carry on this, on this upward trajectory. None of them, none of them saw what is happening in the Ukraine coming. That's caught everyone by surprise. A lot of political commentators saw Putin gathering troops along the uh, edges and the boundaries of Ukraine and, and they all said he's never going to go in it's posturing he's just shown his power, his aggression but he's never going to go in and they're lost for words and even if you put the war that is going on in Ukraine to one side for a minute if you even can just think about what's going on in our own country we all know we're going to feel the pinch in the months to come right we're all ready turning the thermostat down a notch on the heaters, aren't we? We're already just thinking whether we actually need to take that extra journey in the car. And it is funny in one sense, but the reality is going to hit us hard. We're going to feel it. Rising energy prices. So one of the things that the economists and psychologists and sociologists thought that we direct our attention to after COVID was climate change. That's the next big crisis that's coming for us. And it's almost as if that's just been put on pause for a minute while we deal with what's going on in Ukraine. But the climate change crisis is significant. Half a degree more in the temperature and that is going to wreak havoc across the world. And then we turn our mind and our focus to what is going on in Ukraine. The reality is even when we look at the war there, there are many other wars going on all over the world. We're going to meet and gather and pray for the situation in Ukraine in a week's time. And as we meet and gather, we're also going to pray for Afghanistan. We're going to pray for Yemen. It's interesting how quickly Afghanistan dropped off the radar, isn't it? Like just a few months ago, we were 
praying and we were focused and we were thinking about the conflict that was going on there and we've almost completely forgotten about it. And partly that's because the Taliban have done an incredible job, not in the good sense of the world, in a, of the word, but an incredible job at locking down the media there. Like nothing is getting out. But what is getting out is horrific. Children, girls in particular, no longer able to get educated. Five million children on the brink of starvation. But there is something about what's going on in Ukraine at the moment that is affecting us in a different way. Like we feel it, don't we? It's creating an environment, a, an atmosphere of fear and anxiety. Like we were walking around the park this morning and as I do, you should know this by the way, i.e. a wig, people's different conversations as we're walking. And almost all the conversations that people were having as we were walking around was about Ukraine. What's going on there? And thinking about what's going to happen next. And people are getting worried and anxious. They're getting fearful about what's going on. And there's a reason that Ukraine feels just a little bit different to us maybe than Afghanistan or other conflicts. Firstly, we've got access to it like we don't have access to any other conflict. Like we see it on a, a almost an hourly stream on the television. So we get minute to minute updates on our phones. This war feels real to us. And it's kind of cultivating this fearful anticipation of what's going to happen next. There's a proximity to the war as well that feels threatening. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's thought, could it, could it come to us next? Could it spread towards us? Is it going to pull us into the war? Are we going to have to send our troops there? Are we going to have to think about what's going on in our own land? And it cultivates a fearful anticipation. It's so volatile, like we've literally no idea what this man's going to do next. Like, could China start making moves towards Taiwan? We're looking at this 40-kilometer-long convoy heading towards Kiev, and we're thinking, what's going to happen next? It's so volatile. Could, could it be chemical? Could it be biological? Could it be nuclear war? Like, we don't know what's going to happen next. And then we also feel the direct effect. There are people that we know, faces, names, we feel the direct effect of what's going on in Ukraine. Every time we fill the car up, every time we hear brands that we're familiar with making statements and move to withdraw from Russia, like much like COVID, the war in Ukraine has become a global movement. Everyone's having to take a stance on it. And so it feels like it's directly affecting us. You add all of those things together. The uncertainty of what's going to happen, this fearful anticipation of what is next. And the result is fear and anxiety. And the thing with fear, the thing with anxiety is it spreads through a system. As soon as one person feels it, it never contains to itself. It passes on to other people. It's contagious. And so we find ourselves and we experience it when we even just listen to other people's conversations. We find ourselves now being brought into communities of fear. And that is because the logical default in moments of brokenness is fear and anxiety. But it's only logical if we cut God out of the equation. Let me say that again. The logical default in moments of brokenness is fear and anxiety, but that is only logical if we cut God out of the equation. See, a better question than what is going to happen next, a better question to ask is, God, what are you doing? In this brokenness, in this moment, as we are feeling just this pull towards fear and anxiety, God, what are you doing? If you created this world, 
If you created everyone in it, and, and as you say through the Bible, you are intimately connected to your creation. If that is true, then what are you doing? That question really matters. It's a question we've seen already in the book of Exodus that Moses has asked of God. Moses experiences the brokenness of, of slavery of his people around him. And he comes to God and he asks God, what are you doing? If you rewind back to Exodus chapter 1, we see Israel finding themselves seeing the fulfillment of God's promise that he gives to Abraham. God's promise that God's people are going to become a nation from one man, going to become a nation. And they see that promise fulfilled at the start of Exodus chapter 1. They're a nation within Egypt. But then as we go on to the rest of the chapter, we see they're not enjoying what God has promised to give his people. God promises to bring his people into his rest, eternal rest. Except God's people here in the Exodus find themselves in slavery. But God doesn't abandon them. He raises up Moses and he gives Moses another promise. He says, I'm going to lead my people out of their slavery. I'm going to free them from their slavery and bring them in to my restful presence. And there's a physical, real aspect for that, for Israel in that, in that sense. God is physically going to draw them out of Egypt and take them into his promised land where they will enjoy physical rest. But remember, all the way through Exodus, we're talking about physical realities and we're talking about spiritual realities. So as God promises that he will draw Israel out physically, he promises to his people, he will draw us out of our slavery, which all of us enter into as we are born into this world, slavery to sin, which leads us to death, which is the right judgment of God. God promises to his people, I'm not going to leave you there. I promise to draw you out and not just draw you out and leave you there. I promise to draw you into my rest for all eternity. That is the spiritual reality. That is the promise that is woven all the way through Exodus. That is the big story of Exodus, that he is drawing his people out and drawing them into his rest. And if you are part of God's people, that is a promise for you. But Moses feels the tension of hearing the promise, living in the brokenness. God raises up Moses and says, you're going to be the one that's going to lead my people out. And he sends him to Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, this is what God says. Let my people go. Let them out of Egypt. We saw last week, didn't we, that as he goes, he's all ready for Pharaoh to be like, all right then, off you go. Pack your bags, guys. But it doesn't quite happen like that. In fact, things go from bad to worse. God's people, Israel, are in slavery, making bricks for the Pharaoh. And he makes their work even harder. So Moses comes to God in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of seeing his world fall apart, in the midst of things just seemingly not fitting together like he thinks they should. He comes to God and says, God, what are you doing? Folks, I think that is the question that we need to ask in the midst of everything that is going on around us in the world at the moment. We ask the question and we prepare ourselves to hear the answer, which we hear in these next few chapters. We're going to work through Exodus chapter 7 all the way through to chapter 11. I wish we could read it because this is the plagues. We're all familiar probably with, with this story, right? The 10 plagues that come on Egypt. God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. And so God says, okay, well, I'm going to roll out my judgment. And he does it through 10 plagues. And we're probably familiar with what those plagues are. We're going to work through them one by one in a few moments. But I want us to see what God is doing in the midst of these plagues. So, so often we hear them and we think, they're a bit random, like frogs, locusts, gnats. Like, it's, like what is going on here? 
What is going on is God is answering the question, what are you doing within the plagues by showing them this? There is no one like me. There is no one like your God, Israel. There is no one like your God, Moses. And that is what he is telling us in the midst of the brokenness, with the backdrop of everything that's going on in the world at the moment, and with the brokenness that we're contending with individually, it, just with our wrestle against sin, the flesh, the world, and the devil, God wants us to know that there is no one like him. No one like him. That's why we sung that song this afternoon, Nothing Compares, because it's true. God wants us to know, and he repeatedly says it all the way through from chapter 7 to chapter 11. So if you've got your Bible, just flick with me and I'll show you. In chapter 7, verse 5, God says this, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Flick down to verse 17 of chapter 7. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Move over to chapter 8, verse 10. He says, tomorrow, uh, this is Pharaoh having a conversation here. Moses goes back to Pharaoh and he says, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Move over to chapter 9, verse 14. For this time, this is God speaking, I will send all my plagues on you. This is talking to Pharaoh yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Down to verse 16, for this purpose, I've raised you up, Pharaoh, to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then move over to chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. This is the eighth plague. God is talking to Moses and he says, this is the reason why I'm doing it. This is the reason for the plagues. This is the reason, Moses, that you are seeing the brokenness around you. And Liberty Church, this is the reason why we see what is going around us at the moment. He says this to Moses in verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord. God is clear. This is what he is doing in the midst of the brokenness. He wants Egypt. He wants Pharaoh. He wants Moses. He wants Israel. He wants Liberty Church to know that he is God and there is no one like him. And here's the thing. God could have easily skipped the plagues, right? He could have just dealt with Pharaoh wiped him out and led his people out of Egypt. God could easily stop the conflict in Ukraine right now. He could easily bring an end to climate change. He could easily put more money in our pockets or reduce the cost of petrol. He could easily do all of of those things. And yet he doesn't. And the reason why is because he is so determined that humanity will see there is no one like him. And he uses the broken situations of our lives to show us. He wants all humanity to see there is no one like him. And he uses the broken situations that we see around us and the broken situations we experience in our lives to show us. And here is the first way that he does it. He does it by exposing the fragile foundations that we build our lives on. Last week, we stopped at chapter 7. We're going to pick up there and just work our way through. We're going to fly through the plagues, guys, unfortunately. 
I'd encourage you to go back and have a read through if you can. We're going to spend a little bit more time at the front end and the back end. We'll pick up in chapter 7. God's been working on the heart of Moses. He's been revealing to him his character and his purpose. Remember, Moses is resisting God. He's fearful of going to Pharaoh. And last week we saw in the midst of Moses' fear and his reluctance to go, God comes and he reveals his character to Moses. He shows Moses what type of God he is. He shows him what he's going to do. Remember the five I wills? He says to Moses, I will liberate my people. I will redeem my people. I will adopt them. I will bring them to be my people. I will give them a glorious inheritance and I will show mercy on them. God shows to Moses, this is who I am. You can trust me. You can put your hope in me because this is the kind of God that I am. And it's wonderful to see Moses' response as he sees the true character of God being put on display. Bear in mind all of the kind of stumbling and, and, and just fumbling around that Moses has done so far and his reluctance to step into things and to walk in obedience. Now look at what he does in chapter 7, verse 10. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. That's where God wants us to be, folks. As he reveals his character to us, as we struggle in the brokenness, as we struggle to walk in obedience, God reveals his character to us in his gospel and he wants us to arrive at the same place that Moses does where we hear the call of God and we do just as the Lord commanded. In the brokenness of the situation that Moses is, he sees enough of God to trust and he goes. And Moses and Aaron go, they go to Pharaoh. And this is a kind of a prelude, this little bit at the end of uh, chapter 7, a prelude to the 10 plagues that are coming. God says, go to Pharaoh. And when you go, throw your staff down on the floor and it will become a snake. And we've seen this before. Moses has done it. Now this is Aaron's turn. Like I bet Aaron was in the side and he's like, oh, I'd love to give that a go. And God's like, okay, there you go. You can have a staff off you go. So, so Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and uh, they come into Pharaoh's presence. And remember, they're constantly petitioning Pharaoh to let God's people go. But this is a prelude. This is God showing Pharaoh how things are going to roll out over these next few weeks and months. They come into the presence of Pharaoh. Uh, Aaron throws his staff down on the ground in chapter 7, verse 10. And it turns into a snake. Now remember, snakes had high importance in Egypt. Remember we talked about that? The snake was a symbol of royal authority. It was a, uh, it was a, a god they worshipped, the god Apophis. And so it had high importance for them. The, the Egyptians had this strange relationship with snakes. They feared them. They were terrified of them like we should be of snakes. They're horrible creatures and we should all be scared of them. And they worshipped them at the same time. This kind of fear and worship thing going on. And so Aaron throws his staff down. It becomes a snake. And surely kind of everyone's a little bit intimidated by it. Then look what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh calls in his, uh, his magicians in verse 11. He says, right, you guys, you do the same thing. So all of these magicians pile into the room and they throw their staffs down on the ground and they all turn into snakes. Now there's an important lesson that God is teaching us here in this build up to the plagues that are going to come. And it's this, four things he showed us. The first thing is this, our idols do have power. So it's not like God is saying, like, there is no God like me and there is no kind of idol or small g God under me that has any power. No, he's showing us, no, they do. They do have power. The magicians are able to turn their staffs into snake. But secondly, the best that they can do is imitate. See, seven, uh, seven. Satan can never recreate. He can only corrupt what is good. God can create. Satan cannot. 
He can only imitate what God is doing. So our idols have power, but the best that they can do is imitate. And here's the third thing that God is teaching us. All they do is increase our fear. So often we uh, take hold of our idols and pursue sin and listen to the whispers of our great enemy, Satan, thinking that they're going to lead us into peace and into protection and into love and joy. But actually what they do is increase fear. Like think about what happens in the room. Aaron throws his staff on the ground, it becomes a snake. They're fearful of snakes. Pharaoh says, okay, you guys do the same. You throw your staffs on the ground. They turn into snakes. It's gone from one snake to a room full of snakes. Like, see how stupid Pharaoh is. He's just multiplied the fear. He hasn't sorted the problem at all. And then as this little bit of the story finishes off, God has shown us what is most important here. All of our idols are inferior to God. See, what happens next is Aaron's snake gobbles up all of the other snakes. See what God is doing? They have no chance against God. Our idols have power, yes, but the best they can do is imitate. What they do is increase our fear. They don't sort our problems, but we need to know they are all inferior to our good God. And at the end of it, Pharaoh's heart isn't softened. It remains hard. We're going to see that as a constant refrain through these four chapters. Pharaoh's heart remains hard. It isn't softened and so the plagues follow. There are 10 plagues through his next few chapters. And we're just going to deal with the first nine. And and here's why. The way that Moses orders these plagues, he's deliberately ordering them so that we will treat the last one on its own. So we've not brought on the list there. The last plague is the plague of death. We're going to leave that to next week. But it's interesting. We haven't got time to do it now. But each of the nine plagues that we're going to go through this afternoon, they're grouped into blocks of three. So one, three, one, three and nine go together. Two, four and, oh no, hang on, I'm getting this wrong. One, three and nine. No, one, three and six go together. Two, four and seven go together. Three, six, and nine go together. And the reason they go together is for the first um, kind of three, one, three, and nine, what you see in the narrative as it goes through is that Moses um, um, comes out early in the morning. So if you look down, we haven't got time to do it now, but that's how all of these are described. The second block, so two, four, and... Now I'm struggling. Two, four, and seven... For those ones, Moses uh, goes to meet Pharaoh in the temple. And then for the last group of three, I can't do the math, I'm struggling. Um, They just happen without a warning. Basically, what Moses is saying is, put these nine together. It's three blocks of nine. Leave the last one. The last one needs to stand on its own. We are going to leave that last one. We're going to look at it next week in more detail. These first nine come together and God is showing us something specific in these nine plagues. These plagues aren't random, folks. They might sound random. Frogs, gnats, flies, boils. Sound horrific, don't they? They might sound random, but they aren't. In each of these plagues, God has shown us that there is no one like him. And the way that he is doing it is by exposing the foundations of the Egyptian life. He's going to deliberately expose the fragility of specific areas of Egyptian life and idolatry. He's going to show out and show up the places that they have been building their life, seeking to flourish, trying to find life and peace. He's going to knock the feet from under them and bring them to the ground. God wants them to see that these things that they've been building their life on will never give them what they want. 
will never provide what they need and will eventually, as we see in the ninth plague, they will eventually lead you into darkness. Folks, let me just remind you, these plagues happened. Archaeologists, astronomers, historians, they all corroborate this. It's not just in the Bible, this is historical truth. But there is a bigger picture going on here. God is systematically, plague by plague, and we're going to see it in a minute, he's going to draw out a specific Egyptian deity, a God that they worship. And there is an idol that goes along with that God. And one by one, God is going to come and he's going to knock the legs from under it and bring it to the ground. And the reason that he is doing that it's not because he's a cruel God. It's not because he doesn't want them to have fun. It's because he mercifully and lovingly wants to show us that our idols never give us what, what we want. They never provide what, what we need. And if we continue to hold on to them, they will constantly and ultimately lead us into darkness. And so for each of these plagues, it's fascinating. God was deliberately going after a specific Egyptian God. I'm going to put it up. I'm going to walk us through Then we're going to put the idol next to it. And for each idol, you'll see it is an idol for Egypt and it is an idol for us. Right, let's go. I'm going to go through each one, walk us through each one. The first plague that we get in chapter 7, verses 14 to 24. God says to Moses, strike the Nile with your staff and it'll turn into blood. And that is what happens. And folks, there was blood everywhere. Not just in the Nile, like the Bible says it went everywhere. It was in the streams, it was in the rivers, it ended up in people's houses. Now this, uh, the river Nile, we talked about this before. The Egyptians believed that the, the Nile was a, a physical embodiment of the god Osiris or the god Nu or the god Happy. Three different gods are represented in the Nile. And you would worship these gods if you wanted to worship kind of sexuality and sex and fertility. That is the god that you would go and worship. It's the god you'd go and sacrifice I'm going to send this out tomorrow, by the way, on on our weekly email. So don't worry about writing all this down. It'll come out and you can um, have a look at it then. If you wanted to worship sex and that to be your idol, you would come and you would worship these gods. And God destroys it. And they couldn't reverse the disaster. Verse 22, again, just think how stupid Pharaoh is. He says to his magicians, right, you go and do it. And so they strike the Nile and there's more blood. Come on, Pharaoh. Like, see how Satan's power is so self-defeated? Folks, we need to see here that the idol that is being shaken here and undermined here, the idol of sex is alive and well in our day as well. The pornography industry over COVID absolutely boomed. And we know even on our own hearts that this can be an idol. And in the same way that God did in the plagues, he wants to knock the feet from under it. And to show us that banking our hope on the idol of sex is futile. At the end of this plague, Pharaoh's heart remains hard. And so on comes the next plague. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 15, we have the plague of frogs. Now there was a goddess called Hecate. And she had the head and the body of a frog. She was um, a a goddess that you would worship if you uh, wanted to grow a family. So they believed that the goddess Hecate would breathe life into a newborn. And so this uh, plague here that God is bringing about is a direct blow to the idol of family, the idol of relationships. And listen, folks, all of these things are good things. We know that with idols, right? These are good things made bad. These are good things made God. God comes and again, he knocks the legs from underneath it. 
And as you read the description in verses 1 to 15, it's almost comical. The frogs are everywhere. They're in the ovens. Like there's a guy trying to make bread and a frog pops out of the bread. And here's the funny thing. Because they worship the goddess Hecate, who looked like a frog, it wasn't allowed to kill frogs. They were sacred. And so you have all of these frogs, like thousands, millions of frogs bouncing around all over Egypt, and they're not allowed to touch them. And stupid Pharaoh does it again. Go on, guys, you do it. Make some more. (laughs) And there's more frogs. Verse 14, there's so many that heat into piles and it makes a stench. Remember that word from a few weeks ago? The Israels felt like they were becoming a stench in Egypt. Pharaoh comes and he asks Moses and Aaron in verse 8, would you pray for me? Now maybe we look at that and we think, oh, he's doing the right thing here. No, he's not at all. They do, they come to God before him, but in verse 15, he's back to his old ways again. His heart is hardened and so on comes the next plague, the plague of gnats, in verse 16 to 19 of chapter 8. And this is a direct attack at the earth god Geb. So uh, Moses is told to strike the dust of the ground and up from it comes swarms of gnats. Now the ground, as I said, was this earth god Geb and God is undermining that god there. And the earth god Geb was a, a god who kind of protected the land. And in Egyptian culture, all of their resources, all of their stuff, all of their commodities came from the land. God is undermining that idol of re- of resources and stuff and saying, if you put your hope there, if you bank your hope on that idol, it will tend to be futile. And just imagine, just step back for a minute and see how chaotic life in Egypt is getting. Piles of dead frogs everywhere, dead fish in the river, gnats flying everywhere like they're horrible creatures. But it's interesting to see what Moses is doing, what God has shown, and it's a reversal of creation. There's disorder to the waters. Living creatures are doing their own thing. They're not restrained anymore. The land is not giving up good things anymore. And we see ultimately in the last plague, we result in darkness. Can you see a kind of reversal of the creation story here? And folks, that is what sin does. Sin decreates us. It places us into chaotic waters. Now, just like God was undermining the idol of stuff and resources here, see how he might be doing it in our day and age oil water natural gas reading this week 70 percent of the world's neon gas resources are found in ukraine and we need that neon gas for the microchips in our iphones and for our televisions and we can't get it and we may never get it Here comes the next plague, the plague of flies. Now, the Egyptians worshipped a god called Beelzebub. You might be familiar with that name. Literally means Lord of the Flies. He protected the land from natural disasters. And God is going after their security here. This god was meant to protect them, provide them security, and it wasn't. Now, folks, one fly in a room, that's annoying, isn't it? Like, we all get annoyed by one fly, a couple of flies. These flies were everywhere not just outside but in everyone's homes now it's interesting up to this point with the plagues it's been all of egypt that have been affected god's people and the egyptians but from now on god's people aren't touched in plagues one to three we see that living in a world under god's judgment means that we will suffer alongside those who are rejecting him 
So we will feel the pinch of rising energy prices. We will feel what it's like to have our security as a country undermined. But from this plague forward, God's people are going to be separated out. They're not going to be touched. Look at verse 22 and 23 of chapter 8. God says, but on that day I will set apart, he's talking about this fourth plague, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. He's going to separate out his people. They're not going to be touched. And the reason he's doing that is because he wants them to know that he is the Lord. He is the one true God. And now at this point, Pharaoh's getting a little bit ticked off. He's obviously getting, the flies are getting to him. And so in verse 25, it looks like he concedes. He comes to Moses and he says, all right, go. Go and sacrifice to your God within the land. That's interesting. He's letting them go. Or is he? God said, I want my people to leave Egypt, to go and worship me in the wilderness. Pharaoh says, okay, you can go and do it, but you can't leave Egypt. See what he's doing there? See how sin sometimes does that as well? Yeah, you can go and take hold of of Jesus, grab hold of him, but don't let go of this. Don't go too far. Or you can do both. Take hold of Jesus and keep hold of this sin. Pharaoh's encouraging Moses to compromise. He does it again with the eighth plague. He says, okay, you can go, but just the men. The women and the children have to stay. Well, that isn't what God has asked for. God said all of his people are going to leave Egypt. Because we hold on to the things of this world for our hope. So often Satan will offer us compromises. Take one hand off, hold on to both. But God wants us to leave our sin completely. And Moses in verse 26 does the right thing to Pharaoh. He says, no, no, that's not what God has asked. And so the plagues continue. Chapter nine, verses one to seven, we see the plague uh, on livestock. All of the livestock are killed, all of them. Now, the livestock was embodied, uh, an embodiment of the, the god Apis, Isis, and Hathor. And these gods were, were, if you were someone who worshipped beauty and vitality and glamour and sexual prowess, you would worship and sacrifice to these gods. And really, God is undermining the idol of image here. Now, see in verse 6 of chapter 9, all of the livestock died, apart from those in Goshen, apart from those where God's people are. God is saying that these idols that you're holding on to, they are completely worthless. They will never give you what you need. They will never provide you what they promise. And that's the same with the idol of image, folks. If you are being wrapped up into believing that you have to conform to a certain image that the world says that you have to be or conduct your life in a certain manner that the world says you have to do, God is saying, don't listen to it. It won't give you what it promises. We all know that, right? Like our bodies are getting older. Every time you spot another grey hair on your head, it should remind you the futility of putting your hope in the, in the idol of image. We're all getting old and we're all getting ugly. That's the truth. Pharaoh's heart still remains hard. And so on to the sixth plague. Possibly the most horrific, I think, the plague of boils. God sends boils on all of those in Egypt. Now, Amon-Re was the Egyptian god who was called the great physician. Like if you were sick, you would worship and pray to Amon-Re. Imhotep was the god of medicine. You would pray to him for healing. All the Egyptians are struck with boils and they can do nothing about it. Where's your god now? Where's your health now? 
How's banking your hope on good health working for you now? Folks, we know that, right? We've just been through two and a half years of it. If we are trying to bank our hope on the idol of good health, then we need to know it's futile. The seventh plague, the plague of hail. The Bible says it was hail like Egypt had never seen. The god Shu was the god of the atmosphere. The god Nut was the sky goddess. She was believed to hold up the heavens. The god Seth was present in the wind and storm, but none of them could do anything to stop this hail. These gods embodied power. They were creative forces. Now, folks, for so long, the West has believed, and we have been in a place where we have wielded our power over the world, and, and it is being stripped from us. It is being stripped from us. That is not us anymore. We can't believe that that is us anymore. We can't just wake up and think just because we're Western, we have authority and we have power. It is fastly shifting to the East. God is stripping that idol away from us before our eyes. The idol of power. Still Pharaoh's heart remains hard. So on to the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. These locusts come and they eat the harvest. Now, the Egyptian god Min was the patron of crops. Nepri was the god of grain. Senahim was the divine protector against pests. What good was he? These locusts went rabid all through the country and devoured all of the agriculture. Now, for Egypt, agriculture was their economy. That's where they got their wealth from. That's where they got all of their money from. And God knocks that idol from under their feet and says, okay, where is it now? It's nothing compared to me. It's not going to give you the hope that you need. And if we're not feeling it already, folks, we're going to feel it in the months to come. If wealth, if money is an idol for you, you're going to feel that idol slip through your fingers in the weeks and months to come. You are. Your pensions are going to stall. Our investments are going south. Like before the war in Ukraine, we were already predicting a massive divide between the poor and the wealthy in the country. That's only going to get worse. Pharaoh's heart remains hard. And so we move on to the last of the nine plagues. Darkness. Horus was the god of the sunrise. Atom was the god of the sunset. God sends this plague in chapter 10 verse uh, 21 onwards. The plague comes and it covers the land for three days. And three nights. The whole of Egypt covered in darkness. The God of sunrise is nowhere to be seen. The God of the sunset is nowhere to be seen. Amun Re was the sun god, and Pharaoh was the personal embodiment of the sun god. And just like the Egyptians, we have lots of idols. But our supreme idol is ourself. Pharaoh worshipped himself, he was a god to himself. The people came and worshipped Pharaoh and God has shown Pharaoh here, even if you worship yourself, I am going to knock that idol off its pedestal. To build our hope on any of these idols, folks, is futile. I wonder as we look out across the world and we see these things crumbling before our eyes, I wonder what it's going to take for us to come to the right conclusion that there is no one like God. God has shown us that by exposing our fragile foundations, 
but he's also showing us that there is no one like him by calling us out of the darkness into his light. I want to just sit in this last plague for a couple of minutes as we close. God is using the broken situations of our lives to expose the fragility of the foundations that we build our lives on, but he doesn't want us to stay there. If you're looking around the world at the moment, looking at the global situation, and if you're thinking, where is everything going? What's happening to the security that I thought I had? What's happening to the structures of power that that I thought I belonged to because I'm Western? What's happening to the resources that I rely on? Every time you go to the petrol station, if you're looking at the situation around and you're looking and you're seeing your money being stretched, folks, if you're thinking that and you're wondering what is going on, then I think God is doing a work. And maybe your eyes are being opened a little bit closer to home. Maybe you're seeing that family isn't the safe haven that you thought it was. Or great sex isn't the dream that it was painted out to be. Or maybe conforming to the image that the world tells you to be isn't as freeing as you were told. Maybe this is the moment that you're finally coming to the realisation that you are not God. That you being the ultimate God in your life is just leading to chaos after chaos after chaos. And a multiplication of plagues in your life. If you're coming to that realisation, then listen, I think God is doing a work. I am convinced that God is using the present brokenness that we see before us and we experience and we are aware of in our own lives to show us that there is no one like us. He's exposing how powerless the things are that we are holding on to in comparison to him. But that, in his mercy, that is only half of the story. He doesn't just want to open our eyes to the fragility of our idols. Like realising the ship is sinking is no good unless we have a rescue, right? He isn't just showing us the fragility of our idols. He has shown us a better way to live. This last plague, the plague of darkness, has great significance. See, in the Bible, every time we read of darkness, it is shown as a spiritual reality. Darkness is a picture of error, ignorance, sin, rebellion and death. Everything that is opposed to God. And look down with me at chapter 10, verse 21 to 23. Look how dark it was. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven that there may be darkness over the land, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. You see how dark it was? Like it was total darkness pitch darkness like it was so dark they couldn't see in front of like they didn't know anyone was there and so the easiest thing to do was just to stay in bed they stayed in bed for three days because there was no light and don't think oh yeah it gets a bit dark around here sometimes when when the lights go off no we have street lights outside we have the moon shining for three days and three nights the moon is gone the stars are gone the sun is gone there's no such thing as street lights there they cannot see a thing And in verse 21, do you see how God described the darkness? Darkness that can be felt. Darkness that can be felt. That's heavy. Utter darkness. Darkness throughout the Bible, folks, is a picture of judgment. And this ninth plague... Is a picture of the complete judgment over Israel, over Egypt, sorry, for their sin. Not one person could see. Not one person had light. Except, look at verse 23. 
all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Complete darkness over all of the land. The judgment of God over all of the land. Except on God's people. Now for all the things that we think of with darkness, chaos, disorder, fear, anxiety. Now think of light. Peace. Order, beauty, life. The only place to escape the judgment of God, folks, is to be found amongst God's people. Okay, Lord, imagine being an Israelite in Gershom. Everywhere is dark. Everywhere has been ravaged by, by devastating plagues. But you're there. You've got your livestock. You haven't suffered any excruciating pain from boils. There's no flies around the home. You've got your grain, you've got your meat, and you've got light. Imagine them enjoying each other's company, singing together, laughing together, dancing together, because they have light. The Bible says that judgment is coming. God's people will be saved. And that is not because we're good. It's not because we're worthy. It's not because we can protect ourselves. It's because in God's sovereign choice, he has covered us with his light. See, the beautiful thing in this little verse here that we find in this ninth plague is how it points towards the cross. The hope that we find buried in this last plague here points towards the place where we find life secured for God's people. It points towards the cross. Jesus, God's son, the son of God who was perfect and without sin, suffered and died on the cross. He suffered the penalty for our sins. He suffered the judgment due to us. So that all of God's people in Gershom and all of God's people in this room this afternoon would not have to suffer it. The judgment of God was poured out on Jesus instead of us. He suffers and he dies. And this is fascinating. The gospel writers say as Jesus breathes his last, what happens Darkness falls over the land for three hours. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is talking about hell. The certain destination of everyone outside of God's people. And Jesus describes it, and no doubt brokenhearted, he says it is a place of utter darkness. As darkness falls over Jesus on the cross... He is experiencing what we should experience for all eternity. Separation from God. The wrath of the Father being poured out on him. He suffers hell in our place. And then three days later, as dawn breaks, he rises again. His death accepted by God as full and final payment for our judgment. Our sin erased, God's wrath satisfied, our future with God secured. The darkness of judgment that once covered us all, gone. And the promise that Jesus says for his people, just flick it up for us, Carison, John 8 verse 12 is ours. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What if God is using all of the brokenness around us to show us how deficient we are? 
to show us how human structures will constantly fail us, how they all fall short of the glory of God. What if God is using all that we can see around us, all of the brokenness, all of the chaos, to show us how light and life are only found in him? I want to ask us this afternoon, are you coming to that conclusion? Holding on to the things of this world will only lead us to more and more fear. Holding on to Jesus will bring us light and life. God's word to us today is to open your eyes and see the fragility of everything outside of God that we're holding on to, hoping that it might bring us hope and life. And as you do, as your eyes are opened, not to be fearful. Don't look at Ukraine. Don't look at the petrol prices. Don't look at COVID numbers creeping up again and be crippled by fear. God says, run to Jesus. Put your hope there. And in him, find light and life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that Thank you that it is real. Thank you that it is raw. Thank you that it shows us the, the reality of what we experience in the world. This isn't an easy place to live. We contend against the brokenness of the world and sin in our own lives day after day. But Father, thank you that you've not left us. You've not abandoned us. Thank you that you are God of covenant, a God of promise. And as we saw last week, all of your promises find their yes and there are men in your son, Jesus Christ, through the finished work of the cross. And so, Father, draw our hope there. As we've already prayed, help us to cling tightly to the cross, to cling tightly to your son and to hold loosely to the things of this world. Father, open our eyes. Help us to see what you're doing. Help us to see how how all of the things that we we are prone to bank our hope in, help us to see how fragile they are. How they are wasting away even before before our eyes. But help us not to run in fear. Help us to run to your son. Jesus, we thank you that your people are covered in your light. Thank you that we have received your life. And we thank you because that is true, we have nothing to fear. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your son. We pray these things in his name, for his glory. Amen.